Bom dia, bem-vindos a mais um episódio do Onze Supremos. Eu sou Davi Sobreira e só queria lembrar que agora nós temos uma conta no Padrim para os nossos ouvintes que desejarem contribuir com esse projeto que tanto me orgulho de coordenar. Ah, e não esqueçam de acompanhar o Onze também pelo Instagram e Twitter. Por lá vocês podem fazer sugestões e tirar dúvidas sobre os nossos episódios. Professor, once again, I, I would like to thank you so much for accepting this invitation. It is a tremendous honor for me having you here at On Supremos. I believe your work dismisses any kind of presentation, but for the sake of my most erratic listeners who are not familiar with your work, could you please introduce yourself? I'm Mark Tushnet. I'm a professor of law emeritus at Harvard Law School in the United States. Uh, I specialize in U.S. constitutional law and comparative constitutional law, uh, and am uh, quite interested in, among other things, developments in Brazil. So, today we're going to talk about constitutional hardball, an idea developed by Professor Tushnet back in 2004. Professor, first things first, what is the concept of constitutional hardball and which phenomenon served you as insights to the development of this idea? I developed the idea of constitutional hardball during the 1990s uh, when there seemed to be uh, developments in U.S. politics and constitutional politics that uh, struck me as different from what uh, I'd experienced in the prior, say, two decades. Um, the idea of constitutional harbaugh is this. Um, every nation has its constitutional rules, uh, but uh, in addition to those, those rules, there are practices associated with uh, political discourse and political practice that um, seem fairly settled, uh, but that aren't uh, expressly uh, incorporated into the Constitution. Constitutional hardball is the phenomenon that occurs when political actors politicians, elected members of Congress, uh, and the like, <clears throat> do things that are on their face consistent with what the Constitution allows, but that are in tension with or indeed uh, that conflict with the uh, presuppositions about appropriate political behavior. So in the United States, for example, uh, there had been a tradition of uh, uh, opposition legislators um, going along with the nominations to um, what in the U.S. are described as cabinet positions uh, by the incumbent president not opposing them uh, simply because they disagreed with what the president wanted to do. Um, they took the view that the president was elected and was entitled to have um, his or her team supporting uh, the presidency. 
Well, sometime in the 1980s, 1990s, that norm began to erode. Uh, and opposition politicians began to oppose nominations, not on the grounds of qualifications, but simply because they disagreed with the program that the president uh, was pursuing through these nominations. That phenomenon has spread quite widely uh, to the point where um, some of the rules had to be changed to prevent that kind of obstruction. And then in the presidency of Donald Trump, we saw a sort of wide scale um, playing of constitutional hardball. Uh, in the United States, again, the best example under Trump was that in previous administrations, when our legislature engaged in investigations of the presidency or the administration, the president and the cabinet might initially resist, but then engage in some negotiations over the terms on which the investigation could proceed. During the Trump administration, the administration took the position that it would not negotiate at all, that it would uh, not participate in any investigation uh, of its own behavior in any way whatsoever. Uh, it refused to turn over documents. It prevented testimony by uh, both high-level officials and civil servants uh, to the point where there's um, uh, in the, now in the United States a sort of substantial backlog of questions about what the administration did and why it did it that might be investigated in the future uh, with, a, uh, with a Biden administration. But hardball, to get back to the theme, was the departure from prior practices that weren't required by the Constitution, but that had built up as uh, norms of behavior. Professor, this made me remember the Merrick Garland's episode of the Senate block to his nomination to the Supreme Court and later the disregard for the same principle when it came to Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. Can the block of Merrick Garland's to the Supreme Court by the Senate be seen as an episode of constitutional hardball? Uh, one episode of constitutional hardball was involved um, judicial appointments. Uh, you can tell the story in a variety of ways. Um, and Republicans and Democrats tell the story in quite different terms. But um, in the Garland episode, as with the um, recent appointment of Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, um, the Senate took the position that Constitution gave it the power, sheer formal power, to uh, proceed on a nomination however a majority wanted to proceed and whenever a majority wanted to proceed. And so uh, the Republican-controlled Senate 
when Barack Obama was president, took the position that it had the constitutional power to refuse to hold a hearing uh, or a vote. Um, and that's almost certainly true. Uh, you can, and people did sort of dream up convoluted arguments that uh, the president, that the Senate didn't have that power, but basically the Constitution says it's up to the Senate to decide what to do. However, there had been a, a tradition of um, entertaining nominations sort of until an active campaign for the presidency was underway. Um, defining the contours of the tradition was a little tricky, uh, but the tradition sort of was there. These cases weren't common. Uh, and, and Democrats said the Republicans were playing hardball by insisting on exercising their constitutional power to hold a hearing or not. Uh, similarly, with uh, the nomination of Justice Barrett, there an active campaign was underway. Indeed, uh, as Democrats kept pointing out, votes had already been cast uh, when the Senate took up the nomination and proceeded to confirm her appointment to the, to the Supreme Court. Again, conceitedly within its power to decide when to hear uh, uh, and, and vote on a nomination. Professor, uh, as I read your paper, I couldn't help myself to make a connection between what you call preconstitutional understandings. There are a uh, fundamental position in, in your paper, and the unwritten rules, the idea that Professor Levitsky and Ziblatt develop in how democracy dies. Is there a, a really a connection between the, the preconstitutional understandings and the unwritten rules, or am I mistaken here? Uh, no, I think you're right. And, and indeed, um, in uh, the Levitsky and Ziblatt book, they actually refer to uh, the idea of constitutional harbor with, with references to my work, um, they call these pre-constitutional understandings guidelines. And I suppose the only difference is that maybe because they are political scientists and I'm a constitutional lawyer, I think some of their guidelines are uh, more removed from the Constitution. Than, uh, than my notion of constitutional hardball. So, for example, um, they, I can't recall exactly the term they use, but uh, they think that one of the guidelines is something like a uh, willingness to treat the opposition as Mutual a, toleration. A mutual toleration, right, thank you. Um, I'm not sure that's connected, at least in the U.S. constitutional system, to uh, the Constitution. That's a political understanding um, that is important, uh, but I'd be reluctant to say that there's anything in the Constitution that uh, um, is uh, tied to 
notion of mutual toleration. Uh, so mutual toleration is more like a playbook, uh, a part of a playbook of good behavior in democratic politics than some extraction of the uh, or interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, right? Uh, right. It, it, it's a, a political practice that is very important for sustaining a democracy. Um, I should note, it might be embedded in other nations' constitutions. Uh, but uh, I'm not, uh, I'd be reluctant to say that it is part of, um, it's related to something in the U.S. Constitution. Professor, another question that came to mind as I read uh, your paper is about the constituent power as the sovereign force that founds a new constitutional order. In this matter, unlike the United States, Brazil has inherited the French tradition of constituent power created by Emmanuel Sieyès. I know that it's not correct to talk about constituent power in the U.S. common law tradition, but some examples brought by you in your paper, especially on the constitutional hardball played with substantive principles, seem to me as examples as constitutional of constitutional mutations, which are a form of manifestation of the constituent power. I believe in US you call it the amending power, although it may be materialized in Brazil by uh, constitutional interpretation by the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that the uh, connection between at least some kinds of constitutional hardball and ideas of constituent power Uh, is a real one. Um, most people, most of the time, think of the constituent power being exercised in a uh, constituent assembly or some large-scale uh, revision of the Constitution. Sometimes a, a package of amendments put forward as a large-scale reform proposal. Uh, that might be seen as an exercise of the constituent power. Uh, uh, there are a lot of complexities with the idea of constituent power, but uh, uh, the, the, the core notion is always associated with the constituent assembly. But um, we know that uh, fundamental constitutional change occurs I think in all constitutional systems, not limited to common law ones, uh, by means other than uh, the direct convening of a constituent assembly. So in the United States, we're comfortable with the idea that, because it's so hard to amend our constitution, one form of amendment to the constitution is by judicial interpretation, or what courts present as an interpretation of an existing constitutional provision. Um, sometimes, I think, constitutional hardball can be seen as an attempt, sometimes successful, sometimes not, to uh, reshape constitutional system in the way that a constituent assembly would do, uh, but limited to a particular kind of practice. Um, and so, for example, in the United States, 
uh, we've seen the development of what uh, now Justice Kagan once called presidential administration, a flowing of power to the presidency. <coughs> That's occurred in, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways. Um, I think you can see some of the resistance in Congress to uh, presidential power as um, uh, both a form of constitutional hardball and as an effort to reshape the balance of power uh, between president and Congress in the way that a constituent assembly would uh, potentially do. So again, to sum up, some forms of uh, constitutional hardball can be, I think, properly understood as sort of limited deployments of the constituent power with respect to particularly to problems that politicians think are particularly urgent. Uh, interesting. Professor, uh, bringing uh, again and uh, profounding this, getting deeper in the constitutional hardball here in Brazil, I we had in 2016 and a second impeachment process since the last constitution took place here in 1988. And... I saw a dozen of theories that try to explain what does exactly the impeachment process meant in a material way here in Brazil. Some some of them said that uh, was a sort of a soft coup d'état, and a coup d'état in the political science can be seen and in the three particular ways, uh, as far as as uh, as I am aware. We had a uh, a uh, president that holds on to power without observation of constitutional rules, a president deposed without observation of constitutional rules, or a president that takes power without the observation of constitutional rules. That in Brazil came as a cloudy, a cloudy uh, situation because uh, President Dilma has suffered an impeachment and this impeachment has a little bit of uh, uh, controversy in the, in the judicial system. So I'm trying to, I will try to brief you about what happened here in the, in the nutshell, if possible. And I would like to ask you, if possible, if you are able to see more of a soft coup d'état or an episode of constitutional hardball. So, to brief you, uh, in 2016, we have the second impeachment. And, of course, I wouldn't be able to give all the details. But in my reading of your paper, I felt like constitutional hardball was the best form to explain the impeachment process that happened here. Obviously, I recognize the epistemological matter that of the imperfection of the knowledge. But in Karl Popper's lesson, to me, your idea, as far as I'm aware, is the best is the best one to explain what happened. I know something about the, the background of the uh, impeachment of, of um, President Dilma 
Um, <clears throat> I, I do think so. So here's how. Here's my understanding of uh, the situation in Brazil, and then I'll compare it uh, to the United States. Um, the uh, Brazilian system is uh, um, characterized by a president who typically, uh, not always, but typically doesn't have a majority support for his or her party in the parliament. And so the president has a sort of, well, has a coalition Professor, there is a concept developed by Sergio Branches here in Brazil for this model of presidentialism. He called it a coalition presidentialism. So Dilma was uh, in this coalitional presidentialism um, supported by a, a coalition, uh, but the coalition wasn't fully committed to her program, and, and indeed, uh, as you Brazilians know, uh, the, um, I guess he was Vice President Temer, was um, basically the other side of the political spectrum from uh, Dilma. Um, under those circumstances, uh, you could, unless you had some degree of sort of uh, pre-constitutional understanding that uh, the coalition displaced the president um, um, by impeachment, uh, you wouldn't have presidents holding office uh, for substantial periods. Um, and, and so, again, the, there are two possibilities you could uh, imagine. One would be that the impeachment of Dilma was an example of a constitutional hardball. Um, uh, just, uh, or uh, you might uh, see the, um, in, in terms of what we discussed earlier, you might see the impeachment as the development or a movement in the direction of a reconfigured presidential system in which eventually the political system would adjust to the point where presidents always had a majority support in the parliament. So non-coalitional uh, presidentialism. Um, and for a moment, uh, it looked as if uh, President Bolsonaro might become an example of that transformed system. Uh, as I understand things, it doesn't look like that's going to uh, persist now, but, um, and so you might be back to a system in which the possibility of presidential impeachment is always on the table. Uh, I would note in the United States that We've now had two impeachments in, I guess it's 24 years or so, roughly, uh, which is a lot. Uh, and it might be that we are moving to a system where 
uh, uh, when our lower house, which initiates impeachments, is controlled by a party other than the president's party, impeachment will be routine. Uh, now, in the most, in actually, both of the impeachments that uh, occurred in the historical memory, the House was controlled by the opposition party, the Senate was controlled by the president's party, and so neither president was removed from office. Uh, it would it, be interesting to see if these developments occur, uh, what might happen when both of the houses of Congress were controlled by, by the opposition party. Uh, uh, I think the possibility of impeachment, actually in the uh, Clinton impeachment, uh, Republicans controlled the, the Senate, but without a margin needed to convict uh, uh, the president. Um, be interesting to see if this development uh, continues, what would happen with a now routine impeachment uh, in the United States leading to the removal of a president. Professor, just to make it clear for our listeners, so it is correct to affirm that in your vision, the impeachment process of 2016 on Dilma Rousseff's government is an episode, can be seen as an episode of constitutional hardball. Um, as, as I understand things, uh, in retrospect, it looks like the uh, 2016 impeachment was an example of constitutional hardball. Um, again, uh, with coalitional presidentialism, um, there has to be some degree of restraint uh, within the coalition, uh, the members of the coalition have to um, accept that some of the things the president does are going to be inconsistent with their party's preferences, but stability requires it. Um, the 2016 impeachment seems to have represented a departure from that kind of restraint. Professor, is there anything else you would like to add to our conversation? I think that, uh, in conclusion, I'd say that uh, the idea that constitutional hardball um, can be a form of uh, the deployment of the constituent power uh, is an interesting and important idea that um, scholars at least should think about uh, and that might uh, manifest itself in political behavior in the United States over the next decade, in Brazil over the next decade, uh, and perhaps might lead to a broader reconsideration of constitutional foundations and basic constitutional arrangements in both uh, Brazil and the United States. Professor, in this last section, we used to suggest some books or papers about what we have discussed here for our listeners. Is there any indication you would like to do? 
for uh, listeners who uh, might be interested in uh, exploring my thinking about these issues in more detail, uh, in addition to the article that I published uh, now almost 20 years ago, uh, earlier this year, uh, I uh, published a book uh, called uh, Taking Back the Constitution. Um, uh, Constitu I think it's the subtitle is something like uh, constitutional, um, so it, subtitle is Activist Judges and the uh, Future of the Constitution. It was published by Yale University Press uh, in July of this year and um, talks about uh, how uh, constitutional hardball uh, might uh, lead to uh, significant changes in the underlying U.S. Constitution uh, over the next decade. Professor, I'm sorry about our audio problem, but I deeply appreciate this conversation. It was a great honor to me having you here at Onze Supremos. Well, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, um, to uh, speak with you about, uh, and your listeners, uh, about these ideas um, and, and hope that uh, the, the podcast is uh, informative and helpful.